All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another Beyond Conflict series. This month, we will be focusing on the evolution of Afghan identity with a variety of esteemed guests. This series will be running throughout the month of February on Wednesdays and Saturdays at 6 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. To receive notifications and updates regarding the series, please follow our social media platforms. And if you miss any of our episodes, please check them out on our YouTube channel. Today, we will be in conversation with Sangar Paikar. Uh, Sangar is an expert in cross-cultural communication. He has graduated from the School of Governance and Global Affairs at The Hague and has studied journalism at postgraduate le level at Leiden University. He is currently the host of a podcast series, The Afghan Eye, which seeks to provide a counter-narrative to what the mainstream media portrays of Afghanistan. They aim to challenge stereotypes about Afghans and Muslims in general that have been instrumentalized in the war on terror. He can be found on Twitter at Ikhar. Sangar, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, it's quite an honor to be invited by uh, Identity International. And I have done some research about your work and I saw your previous series. And I'm delighted to speak to you guys. So, uh, yeah. Thank you. So as per usual, and you know, all of our um, series start off with this question. Uh, so what does it mean to you to be Afghan? Uh, for me personally, uh, being an Afghan is uh, uh, first and foremost, being the son of my mother, because uh, my mother is like, uh, I, I, I've been raised by two parents, like my father and my mother, but uh, uh, most of my life I spent with my mother because uh, my father was always away with work and uh, she would uh, teach us about uh, language, culture, morality, a lot of things like at a very young age. One of the things that I remember was that uh, uh, schools were closed in Afghanistan because of uh, war, you know, there were rocket attacks. Uh, so the city uh, was sort of in a lockdown, you know. It's quite strange, people are not accustomed to lockdowns now, but uh, we've experienced that uh, ages ago. Uh, and when there was a lockdown because of rockets, my mother would read from uh, Shahname Ferdowsi. It is a very old uh, book of uh, tales, uh, it's part of uh, uh, the Persian uh, literature and uh, tradition. And uh, the reason why she would read that to us is uh, first and foremost so that we get a sense of um, understanding of uh, who we are, what our background is and what our culture is like. Uh, and, and that instilled in me a very strong sense of uh, you know uh, identity history and culture uh, from our region and for the second part uh, I'm uh, an Afghan because of my father uh, even though he was uh, not very involved in my development as a person at a young age uh, it was more so his his father so my grandfather he um, was a, a village elder, he was a tribal leader, uh, uh, someone who was very uh, uh, respected and well-known in our uh, community. 
And I've spent a lot of time with my grandfather and observing him as a child, how he would conduct himself, how he would talk to people, how would he uh, treat other people and vice versa, how people treated him like his son was a, a very prominent uh, a figure in the government during the communist era. Uh, but my grandfather, even though he was a tribal leader and son of a very powerful person, he would travel around in the city in public uh, transportation like everyone else. He would walk from a large part of the you know city from one part to the other part. He would go just by foot. And uh, despite the fact that he was behaving like a very common person, people saw in him like his character. They saw someone who uh, commanded respect. And when I look at myself when i see myself as who i am uh, as a person uh, um, i i see a sort of a mixture of the influences of my mother and my grandfather uh, what what those two people represent uh, that's how what i identify with as an afghan that's what i uh, see as part of my identity my background my culture and uh, what gives me a, a sense of belonging. Uh, you left Afghanistan in the 90s, if I'm correct, and settled in the Netherlands. Uh, can you tell me about that experience, how it's been, and uh, you know, how has your sort of Afghan identity and how in the context of, you know, Netherlands and, its, and the culture there, uh, how that, how's that been? Um, when we arrived as the refugees in the Netherlands in the early 90s, I was about 12 years old. And uh, we, uh, uh, in Afghanistan, like because of the war, uh, we spent most of our time at home. We couldn't go outside. We couldn't interact with other people uh, like normal children. Uh, because uh, there was a lack of security, there were threats and everything. Uh, but in the Netherlands, when I arrived in the Netherlands, I was totally free. I could go and play and uh, hang out with other uh, kids of my age. So it was a totally different experience, but I was in a very alien uh, like uh, environment. People were totally different. And... Since I was very young, I had to uh, adjust accustomed to my new environment. And one thing that really, uh, I, I would say something that really uh, had a big impact on me is that we used to live in a city here in the Netherlands it's called Leeuwarden, all the way in the mm -hmm. north. It's uh, in the rural area of the Netherlands. And there were practically no Afghans there. Uh, we were one of very few Afghan families there. So in my teenage years, I had literally no contact with other Afghans. Just my mother, my sisters, uh, and there, 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 there were no other Afghans. So I had to uh, develop myself as a teenager, being part of the local culture and community, uh, um, like living between two cultures at home i am an afghan but outside i had to be everything just like everyone else um, 
And that was quite a challenge because, uh, you know, as a young man, you need a role model, you need uh, some sort of uh, influence to shape your uh, character, shape your uh, um, uh, identity. But when it's not there, then uh, you're embraced by the, the, the environment. And the environment I was in, it was a street culture. Uh, like most of my friends, we, we lived in a, in, in, in a neighborhood in the Netherlands that was in top 10 of the most of the poorest neighborhoods in the Netherlands in the 90s. Uh, so there was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of crime uh, and something you most likely never hear about because Netherlands is such a perfect mm -hmm. and wealthy country. But uh, yes, the Netherlands does have its... Um, you know, less fortunate parts. Mm -hmm. And we happened to live there in such a neighborhood. And uh, eventually when I became an adult uh, and I look back at my uh, teenage years here in the Netherlands, what's so amazing and incredible is that from all my friends, I am the only one who never became involved in crime. I am the only one from my friends, from the entire community, who has never been convicted of anything uh, worst thing that I have is a speeding ticket. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and, and if I look back at, at how I uh, developed as a person uh, during my teenage years, uh, I think that the fact that I had very little contact with other Afghans uh, deprived me in my teenage years of a lot of my own culture and heritage. Um, and on, on the other hand, I think that being uh, submerged into uh, the street culture as a teenager, um, it exposed me to different uh, cultures, different backgrounds, people from, from uh, former colonies of the Netherlands, people from North Africa and the Middle East, but also the Dutch culture. Uh, I have developed a very a broad sense of identity of who I am, but also uh, I'm also uh, very comfortable being around people from all different backgrounds. I can relate to people. I can uh, understand their their not just their language, but their uh, attitudes and their their uh, sentiments. Which uh, yeah, despite everything, I think that's uh, something that made me. Uh, who I am today, and I am grateful for that. Yeah, I mean, you refer to yourself as an expert in cross-cultural communication. I would assume that has a lot to do with it, you know. Um, and it, you've used a particular phrase as a bridge between cultures on your website, right? Um, and I can imagine how handy, like, this upbringing must have been in that. Yes. Are there any particular experiences that you could share with us? Yeah, okay. Uh, so... Uh, being a cross-cultural communication expert, um, there is a whole academic discipline of cross-cultural uh, communication. There, are, there is handbook of cross-cultural communication. Uh, um, there is a lot of literature on this particular field. Uh, but what's so um, interesting is that a lot of theory is developed uh, and uh, published but uh, very few people uh, in this field are from uh, a mixture of different cultures. Like uh, I am from Afghanistan and in Afghanistan we have 
15 registered languages, not dialects, languages. And we have so many different ethnic groups. I am from a mixture of two ethnicities, like my father is an ethnic Pashtun, my mother is an ethnic Tajik. Um, uh, and then they are also in their uh, family history, they are also mixture with other ethnic groups. Uh, I am from a region of the world where um, national identity is not formed in the way it's formed here in, in Western Europe after Westphalia. You know, uh, mm -hmm. we are still a society that is a mixture of different groups, different ethnicities. And in our society, you are forced to be someone who is capable of uh, going over the boundaries of language and culture and customs in order to uh, operate and function in a society because the society is, neat, uh, is not uh, homogenous. Mm -hmm. Our society is, is, is very uh, mixed. There, it, 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 it's, it's a strong mixture of different cultures, influences. So that's my... Uh, background. Uh, and then I came to the Netherlands <clears throat> as a kid who spent very little time in school in Afghanistan. But the little time I did spend in a school in Afghanistan, uh, I learned three languages. Farsi, a very little Pashto because uh, Pashto was not really encouraged at school. Uh, and I learned some Russian. So when I came to the Netherlands, I was a young boy. I was 12 years old. I knew three languages, sort of. Uh, I learned Dutch. And uh, while I was 12, just 12 years old, I was translating for a lot of people uh, when it was necessary for my parents. But then something that most people don't realize is that at a very young age, your brain functions like a sponge. You absorb everything and you can also uh, uh, process a lot of uh, new information. Uh, so when I was 12, because I knew some Russian, I could understand uh, people from former Yugoslavia. So uh, Serbia, uh, Bosnia, Croatia, all of them, they spoke, as a, a same, they spoke the same language, but... Um, uh, yeah, so uh, they spoke the same language and I could understand them. I, I, I could speak back uh, in their language and they would be shocked, like, okay, how do you know our language? But that's something that uh, is uh, only possible when you, as a young kid, you're exposed to different languages, different cultures. And being very young, uh, it, it made me uh, capable of, like, quickly adjusting and learning and uh, and responding back. Uh, so at a very young age, I realized that I have this ability to quickly understand what is being said and even answer uh, in, in the same language. So uh, if people ask me, how many languages do you speak? Mm -hmm. I say it depends, but uh, generally I stick to around seven. But uh, it, it's something that evolves because of the exposure. I was exposed to so many different languages throughout my life. Uh, and this is something that I would say is typical for most Afghans. 
is that we are people who speak a lot of languages. It's, it's, it's very common for an Afghan to know Farsi, Pashto, Urdu, English, uh, Russian, uh, and, and uh, Arabic. It's, it's very common. Like you have one person from Afghanistan, just a random person who is averagely educated and they speak a lot of languages. It's, it's very normal for us. But when you come to a, West, a Western country, here in most Western countries, people speak their native language and English. And if they're very high culture, they know Latin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, that is very correct. And I think uh, it applies to most of the Western. I mean, I know the same as can be said for here in London, unless you belong to the diaspora, you normally just speak English. Um, yes. And then if you're from another country, you are lucky to have that the bilingual stance. But you're a polyglot, you know, by seven languages. It's, uh, it is amazing. And actually, that is very true. Most of the Afghans that I have come across even here speak many languages. I think one guy told me he spoke 12 because he'd been around Europe uh, and he spoke, thing, you know, Spanish, Italian, French, and uh, obviously the Pashto Dari and uh, English as well. So it, was, it is, um, you know, it's definitely a defining trait that I think, I mean, the roots of that trait are both mixed. You can say, you know, it's, it's, uh, Someone could say that it's been derived out of unfortunate events because of the fact that you have had multiple um, foreign countries that have uh, come into the, you know, come in and um, sort of, I, if one could use a better word, meddled inside it, <laughs> Afghanistan's politics. Um, that's the mainstream narrative that you get a lot of the time, is the perspective from these countries, right? And I think a lot of the work that you guys have been trying to achieve through the Afghan Eye um, podcast, as we mentioned in our um, introduction, was that, you know, you are aiming to challenge the stereotypes about Afghanistan, uh, especially the ones that have been instrumentalized in the war on terror. Can you elaborate on that for me? And, you know, some and can you name some of these stereotypes and your take on them when the alternative perspective that they uh, that you might have? Uh, yes. So. Uh, if we just stick to war on terror, uh, one of the often repeated uh, cliches is uh, in the 90s during the Taliban, everything was bad. But after the 90s, after 2001, uh, the new government came and now everything is better. Um, so for the last 20 years, we keep going back to how terrible the 90s were because of Taliban. Mm -hmm. And there is a black spot, the, like, like a total bl a blind spot uh, before that. The, uh, it, it, people are not made aware of what happened before uh, the rise of Taliban regime. How uh, was that regime, uh, uh, like what were the factors that made it possible for a group like the Taliban to take over the whole country. Uh, this is something that is not discussed. It's, it's not uh, explained well. Uh, and if you don't explain that, if you don't uh, uh, give people a, a proper understanding of what contributed to that situation, uh, you keep uh, perpetuating a false narrative about Afghanistan. 
like uh, most of the problems that we face right now in Afghanistan, like for instance, um, corruption, insurgency, uh, there is a lot of crime, uh, there is um, uh, extreme growth in inequality. Like uh, recent reports have uh, suggested that uh, 18 million people in Afghanistan uh, are facing famine. Uh, and this is after 2012, uh, no, 2001, after the U.S. invasion and after uh, pumping billions of uh, dollars in Afghanistan. And while these facts are being presented as headlines in New York Times and foreign policy, uh, they're not really actually explaining why, after all these years, everything has gone so dramatically uh, from bad to worse. And, and what, what we try to do is, is go back further in history to under, uh, make people understand what's going on. For instance, one of seminal episodes of uh, like our podcast is the legacy of uh, uh, Afghan King Amonullah Khan. Amonullah Khan was a uh, king in Afghanistan who was the founder of the, uh, the independent state in the 20th century, because Afghanistan exists as a country for about roughly 300 years. But after uh, British uh, occupation uh, in 1990, the, in, in 1919, Amman Afghanistan as an independent state. And if we try to understand a lot of instability, as a, a lot of uh, um, conflict in Afghanistan, we have to understand what happened during the era of Amman Khan. Uh, if you uh, look up Amman Khan, if you see what is being said about him uh, in, on social media or in, in documentaries or in newspapers, they say he was the first progressive king of Afghanistan and he was the first leader who wanted to move Afghanistan to modernity. But the fact that, that, that he as a king tried to uh, basically socially engineer society and try to change society from top down uh, and his measures and his decisions have actually uh, created problems that are we uh, like even till today we have those same problems and this is a often repeated uh, uh, pattern is that, yes, Afghanistan is a country that is still in a pre-modern era. Afghanistan, yes, is, Afghanistan is not an uh, ideal nation-state uh, developed and fully uh, evolved like other nation-states, like, let's say, France or Germany. Uh, however, uh, those facts do not mean that... Uh, Society needs to be forced to change top-down, uh, even with help of a foreign invader or uh, intervention. Because trying to force society and trying to uh, use uh, brute force to uh, change people will result into uh, an armed conflict. And this is a repeated process. First, it was during Amman Khan's era. Then in the 70s and 80s, it was because of the communists, uh, the, uh, the communist revolution in 1978, 
and uh, this uh, like it, it's it's a urge, it's a desire to uh, make Afghanistan prosperous, modern, and developed. But the way people are trying to do it uh, is causing a lot of problems, and it's causing uh, instability and conflict. And uh, if we try to understand those patterns, if we try to understand those root causes of the problem, then we can understand why we have certain issues currently in Afghanistan. And uh, you know, we live in a soundbite era. Everything needs to be very simplified and short, and they need to conform to already uh, to, to the biases that the audiences have. Uh, and as a result, we get a very distorted picture of Afghanistan. Like one of the often repeated things that most Afghans uh, actually dislike is that uh, you see. During the 60s, Afghanistan was great because there are some black and white pictures of women in short skirts. Ah, uh, excellent. So uh, uh, there is still hope for these savages because back then their women used to wear short skirts. You know, this is, is, is like an oversimplification of Afghanistan's history, uh, society. And, and what has happened over the years in Afghanistan. And, and uh, what we try to uh, convey with the Afghan eye is a holistic picture of Afghanistan. We want to present a holistic picture. And yes, the holistic picture is not perfect. Some of the stuff we discuss are quite disturbing. They might even uh, make uh, people uncomfortable because... Even a lot of Afghans, especially in the diaspora, they like to believe in a very mythical and uh, uh, a very mythical uh, story of their nation state, their their uh, history, their culture. And sometimes, if you want to uh, tackle certain issues and problems, you have to bust certain myths. Uh, you have to uh, uh, be very blunt about certain issues. And uh, this requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of research. So my uh, friend Ahmad Walid Kakar, who is also the founder of Afghan Eye, um, we, we do a lot of research, studying. Um, we uh, are also uh, talking to older generation Afghans. We are also talking to people from different uh, fields of expertise because uh, we want to have a very holistic understanding of issues. Uh, so when we comment about certain matters, whether it's it in our articles or in our podcast, uh, we, not, we, we don't want to be uh, like, uh, it, it's very easy to be very um, provocative and mm -hmm. confrontational. Uh, uh, we want to do it in a very responsible and nuanced manner, but uh, at the same time, we feel like uh, we shouldn't be scared of going in a certain direction where we talk about very controversial issues. Like one of the main issues that is still controversial and people don't want to uh, uh, even mention it is that Afghanistan is an occupied country right now. Afghanistan doesn't have sovereignty. Uh, uh, it's a very simple fact. Like, 
if a country uh, has a situation where a foreign force enters that country and those foreign forces can kill people without getting punished, mm -hmm. they can imprison people or torture people without getting punished, then it means that this country doesn't have any sovereignty. People in that country are not sovereign. They are not capable of uh, enforcing law on people who enter their country simply because America, Britain, all these uh, foreign uh, nations that have entered Afghanistan, they have bigger weapons, bigger guns, and people in Afghanistan have little choice but to conform. This is a, this is a, this is a reality, and this is something that is generally denied in the, in, in the, in the media. It, it, it's not uh, recognized because they say, well, uh, we entered Afghanistan because we had to fight terrorism and uh, we created a civil democratic society. Um, uh, there was a UN-backed uh, 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 intervention. So therefore, everything is legal. Everything is legitimate. But if you look at the facts at the situation in Afghanistan, like the election of uh, 2019 was extremely uh, fraudulent. The, the election was fraudulent. Uh, less than 2 million people have voted. The winner of the election had about 600,000 votes. And during his inauguration, there was another inauguration of another president 500 meters away in a different palace in the capital of Afghanistan. So then the Americans, they uh, chose one candidate and they said, you are the president and that's our current president now. So, so you see, without the intervention of Americans, we can't even decide who is, who is our president. This is, this is a reality. And w w what we see in the media, what we see in the news is, uh, yes, uh, Afghanistan's legitimate government in Kabul has said this or said that. But how legitimate is the government when even the election needs to be decided by the Americans? How do we work towards an... I mean, I definitely agree with the holistic approach, and you know, us, yeah. the, the the Afghan guy, um, sorry, the Afghan eye is trying to aim towards. You know, there are multiple narratives, there are multiple stories. Uh, I would say that's actually pretty much in line with what we're trying to do with these series as well, is to pre present those narratives without being provocative, which was, you know, a very interesting point that you made. How, I mean, obviously these online digital platforms do help, and uh, the podcast series in itself is a method to do that, but. I do feel like there needs to be more done. And I mean, do you have an opinion on that? What would you say, uh, you know, how we can work towards these um, becoming more public knowledge and having a wider approach and, you know, informing Afghans about sort of their autonomy and their rights and um, in that sense? Uh, we have uh, created the Afghan Eye as a... Uh small project but it's evolving it's growing uh, we are going to expand into our native languages Pashto and Dari mm -hmm. so we're going to start uh, publishing soon in our native languages and what I believe what is necessary is that 
we as Afghans, we need to have our own independent media. Like, for instance, in Afghanistan, there are more than 100 TV uh, channels. There are hundreds of radio stations. There are many websites, news websites. Uh, there are sponsored Facebook pages, uh, Facebook news pages. The, a lot of money is being pumped in the media in Afghanistan. And most of this money is either from USID, so the United mm -hmm. States aid organization, or uh, foreign embassies, Western embassies uh, based in Kabul, uh, Western NGOs like Asia Foundation, which which is very uh, is, is a history. Uh, Asia Foundation has a history of having close ties with the CIA, and and similar institutions. They are creating the whole media in Afghanistan. So whoever pays. You know, in Farsi, we have an expression, so whoever is paying, whoever is feeding you, they decide what happens. Mm -hmm. So if we as Afghans, if our entire media uh, 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 industry is financed by foreigners, so it means that they have a big say in what, what the nat narrative is going to look like. So the reason why we created the Afghan Eye as a uh, uh, media organization that is funded by our viewers and listeners is because we want to encourage a culture where we invest in our own institutions. We build our own institutions and people who believe in our cause. If, if people approve of what we do, if they believe that what we are doing is of any benefit, they can uh, sponsor us. And it's, it's, it's a process that needs to grow and evolve. But eventually, we want to go into something bigger. We want to also publish books. We want to publish uh, uh, like documentaries. Uh, and uh, the thing is, is that I personally, I'm a builder by nature. I am a person who believes that everything needs to be built from the ground up. Uh, by yourself in order to distinguish it from other entities, other uh, uh, things that you disapprove of. Like I could very easily go and apply for a job and become a journalist or an author somewhere else. But I have my job. I'm a, a communication expert. I'm a le guest lecturer. That's how I make my money. But uh, this project, this is something that needs to be done uh, and it needs to grow and evolve. And therefore, I encourage also other Afghans, not just Afghans, but other people from other uh, countries uh, to uh, start thinking in these terms. We need to create our own institutions. We need to uh, support our own people. We need to... Uh, uh, be uh, ready to uh, uh, support in any way possible. Like, for instance, if it's uh, becoming a monthly patron to some uh, uh, news or, uh, you know, content creator, uh, if you can do that, do it. If you can share their content, do it. Uh, there's, like, for instance, we have a guy in Afghanistan right now He's, he's translating all our articles in local languages. Uh, so we, we have created an, uh, a, a small movement within a year. We have mm -hmm. people who are doing graphic design for us. 
We have uh, someone who's translating our articles. And all of this is mainly for one simple reason. We are genuine. We let people know who we are, what we stand for. And we don't, uh, you know, we don't uh, try to fit into a very uh, popular and uh, uh, politically correct narrative. And people seem to appreciate that. People seem to understand that that's necessary. So when you see that people have an appreciation for what you do, it means that you can grow, you can uh, develop, and you can uh, create more new uh, content. So that's why we are going to have a year, 2021, where we will have uh, an exponential growth. And I think that... Uh, in order to change the narrative, in order to uh, bring about change, what you need to do is uh, become the master of your own story. You need to uh, be uh, involved and uh, active in telling your own story. And uh, a lot of people, they are uh, very skeptical. They will say, well, I don't think that this has any effect. Uh, it's too small. Um, I can tell you from my personal experience that um, about five years ago, I created an uh, online magazine here in the Netherlands. I didn't like the way Muslims were being portrayed in the Netherlands. And I did, didn't like how the media was um, talking about Muslims. So I created my own online magazine. I started interviewing people. I started to write articles on my website. Uh, within a few months, I had two or three other uh, guest authors. And within a couple of years, I even uh, became a witness in a parliamentary uh, inquiry because of that website. I appeared on an international uh, news media. I uh, uh, One of my interviews was uh, used as I... Um, uh, excerpt in a uh, most popular uh, late night talk show in the Netherlands. And I created that out of nothing. So I know from my personal experience that if you create something, if you take control of your own narrative and you say, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to build that, you will have a lot of impact. Like, this I is something. Is, uh, that, that is co uh, currently um, possible. We are, live in a society where everyone has access to the resources that people three, uh, three decades ago couldn't even imagine. We can now compete with anyone, any media organization, uh, because the resources necessary to reach wide audience is now available to everyone. So we have to use it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's quite inspirational, you know, uh, especially the initiative that it takes. And I know there's a, a bit of persistency and, you know, dedication. And obviously, it can be quite, uh, especially if you come across people that aren't very supportive of the idea in the first place, how challenging that can be. So, you know, it is, it's quite inspirational and it's, and it's empowering. And, you know, and I do think it's in, uh, especially towards young Afghans that are growing up, you know, in Afghanistan or in the, uh, in anywhere in the rest of the world, it, mo I think it should be, you know, a motivational uh, point where people can follow by example and 
uh, get a chance to say what they want to say, you know. Um, it, and uh, the bar, part about it that I like the most, where you mentioned, you know, people in Afghanistan getting involved and you have uh, people that are, you know, helping you with your graphics and your writing and your translations. And so it sounds like a platform where it's for the people, by the people, you know. Um, it, 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 that, and that, <laughs> and, you know, that gives power back to the people which is something that i think we've noticed in most of our series is a lot of the people that are living in these uh, quote-unquote conflict zones um, are heavily relying on the people to take their power back and very much so believe in that um, you know uh, one of the professors in a previous one said that he has full hope um, you know that in in the people themselves to be able to uh, do that and I do think platforms like this are ways that we can achieve that. So it is very inspirational. Um, there's another point that I wanted to ask you about. So you returned to Afghanistan in 2005, um, you know, from the Netherlands. And you said that you came, uh, you know, you came to the Netherlands when you were 12. So obviously you are an adult now when you've returned. Uh, how was that experience? Did you feel like you living in the Netherlands changed anything? Or did you have any... Um, you know, was there a gap in the way that you perceive society and the way society per perceived itself? Or is there anything interesting about that period that you'd like to tell us? Uh, when I uh, returned to Afghanistan in 2005, uh, it was mainly because um, here in the Netherlands, when I uh, graduated from school, I didn't go to the university. I started working. Uh, I had a very difficult, a very rough time. Uh, uh, so uh, studying at the university was not an option. Um, and when I started working, I noticed that I was capable of getting any kind of job in this country. But uh, you're always seen as an outsider. Like, for instance, when I speak Dutch, uh, uh, it is barely noticeable that I have an uh, accent. You know, the accent is barely noticeable. Mm -hmm. But still, <clears throat> everywhere you go, people uh, quickly try to make you feel as an outsider. You don't belong here. So, uh, oh, uh, oh, uh, you know, they tell you, like, um, wh what's your background and uh, how come you speak Dutch so fluently? And all these things, it, they constantly remind you that you're not part of the society, you're not welcome here. And w when I went back to Afghanistan, I was 23 years old, something like that. So I was very young and I felt like, um, okay, so uh, maybe there is a future for me in Afghanistan. So when I was in Kabul, uh, obviously... Um, as a young Afghan who spent most of his life outside Afghanistan, um, people do notice that I am a uh, Afghan from the West because uh, obviously uh, the way you dress, the way you conduct yourself, people see very obviously that you are, are someone who lives in a different country. But uh, my uh, language, the way I speak, is, is, is not any different. Like, I am very fluent in my native language. So after just uh, changing my clothes and uh, just 
going about life like anybody else, people stopped noticing that I was actually someone who just came back after years of being away. Um, and that was quite funny because, uh, like, uh, I, I, uh, I didn't feel like I need to stand out from the, from the rest. Like a lot of people, when they travel back to their native country, they want to uh, show off, like, I am wealthy, I am rich, I, uh, I have this or I have that. And I don't feel that I should, should do any of that. And, and I felt actually that I should uh, be as much as I can like the common people. So I dressed like everybody else and I would just travel around the city and the rural parts of the city, like the village where I'm originally from. Uh, and uh, it was a very uh, refreshing to be submerged in a society where people don't notice you as a stranger. They, uh, whether you talk or you're silent, whether you're in a gathering with other people or you're just passing by in a busy street in a market, uh, people don't notice that you are from a different country. You're just part of the rest. Uh, so that was something that I really loved. That, that's something that really uh, like uh, uh, made me feel very comfortable and very. Uh, um, uh, I, I I don't know how to describe it because before that, before going to Afghanistan, I went to a very severe depression here in the Netherlands. Uh, I was very depressed. I didn't feel comfortable. I had a lot of uh, problems uh, with, 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 with my life. Like I, I was growing up and becoming an adult in a country uh, where there is everything. Like uh, the Netherlands is a very wealthy country. We have so many resources here. There's so much, you know, uh, opportunity. But if you don't feel uh, at home, if you don't feel uh, comfortable, um, it can be very depressing. So uh, I was going through that. And when I went back to Afghanistan, I, uh, uh, something that I uh, really realized is that my parents, they're very secular. They are part of the uh, socialist Marxist uh, uh, elite from the city. Uh, they, 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 were ra they grew up in the city and they went to the university and back in the 60s and 70s Afghanistan was being bombarded by Marxist literature and indoctrination so they are part of that generation and they're very secular and uh, in Afghanistan I would say 99% of the people are very religious and conservative so that's something that like really confronted me about my own identity like I realized like my grandfather was pay, praying five times a day, but my father and my mother, they don't. And in Afghanistan, everybody, when you see the Azan, when you hear the Azan, people go and they pray. And we, we didn't do that at home. Uh, and, and that's not how I became an adult. So I felt like uh, there is something missing in my life. And uh, the district where I'm from, uh, outside Kabul, the eastern part of the province of Kabul, there is a piece uh, like a desert and there are internally displaced people. 
from uh, other parts of Afghanistan. Their homes were bombarded and they couldn't return back to their own uh, districts, so they settled in this piece of desert with those uh, very shoddy-looking uh, UN uh, tents. They live in tents. And, and they live in a very, very uh, you know, shocking, uh, poor and, and, and destitute situation. And I was crossing and I saw this little settlement of internally displaced people who uh, they, they, they have barely anything to eat. Uh, it's very uh, difficult to uh, tell the story of, of how uh, poor people are in Kabul, in the in the periphery of the city. And despite their poverty, and despite that their tents had big holes in it, and that they basically lived around a ditch, I saw that people there, they were standing up and they were praying. They were all praying. Young, old, everyone was praying. And that was like, for me, a, a revelation. Uh, I realized that... Uh, the reason why they feel mentally and uh, you know spiritually better than I do here in the Netherlands is because they have their faith. Faith is what uh, keeps them strong, and this is how they go through adversity in life. And that's why I also, after my uh, short stay in Afghanistan, I decided to uh, become a practicing Muslim. I started praying, I started studying Quran, and I've spent a lot of years going to different institutions, trying to learn as much as possible about Islam, uh, because I think that uh, we as a nation, uh, you know, in Afghanistan, but other countries who have been colonized or influenced by the West, is that uh, we are told that if we uh, leave our faith and religion and adopt Western ideas and Western outlook uh, uh, at life that we will be happy and successful. But the truth is, is that uh, these Western ideas and belief systems, they uh, function in this environment, but uh, they don't necessarily produce a better life. Like, for instance, here in the Netherlands, everybody is so wealthy but about 40% of people are depressed in this country. They, they, they uh, consume antidepressants uh, on a regularly on a daily basis. If they're not taking antidepressants, they smoke or they drink alcohol to uh, you know, go through their day-to-day -day life. And that's because they're spiritually have become empty. And, 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 and having wealth and ha being a very prosperous uh, is not making them any better or uh, doesn't make them feel any better. But if you have faith, if you have a belief system uh, in the hereafter, uh, if you know that there is a bigger story than your just personal individualistic life, then uh, you can start to become uh, a more, uh, yeah, uh, you, you become content with everything and you start to be very, uh, uh, you start to accept things for what they are without feeling uh, depressed or miserable. And it, it, it can even translate into being very, 
I would say. Uh, it, it will make you a very strong person who can actually uh, inspire and influence other people. That's very wholesome to hear about a society that goes through so much, especially that there is something that people can hold on to hope in. You know, it is very reassuring and it's very wholesome. And, you know, um, that's it's interesting insight, especially the way that the religion is usually uh, showed on the main, in the mainstream, at least. And, you know, it's shown as a uh, as a component of like ideological uh, reason a lot of people have abused that in Afghanistan as well. Um, religion as you know, more of an ideology than just something that spiritually benefits the individual and allows some sort of contentment, like you said, and strength for the society. Which is it's it's nice to hear that it's still alive on a grassroots level, even if it's not on a politics level. You know, um, but uh, I mean, we are coming near to our time, and so uh, this is the point where I ask every one of our speakers, you know, to basically make any concluding remarks that they want. Uh, you know, it is mainly your opportunity to show Afghanistan as you would like to would like it to be shown to the world or discuss anything about Afghan identity that you think that people should know. Um, so the floor or the mic is yours. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I would say that uh, uh, we live in a globalized world where we all have uh, access to internet and currently under all these lockdowns we are sitting behind our screens uh, most of the time but uh, hopefully after the lockdown when we have more uh, freedom and liberty to move around I would suggest people to go and interact with people from different cultures and backgrounds more often if you know any Afghans invite them to, to your home and Afghans, we are very hospitable people. We like to invite other people to our home and sit together, have, uh, our, you know, we share our food, Afghan tradition, our food. Most people have heard about our food. Uh, sitting together, eating and talking and actually absorbing what Afghans are like based on your first-hand experience is what, what, what people should, should do. We shouldn't uh, um, define what we think, you know, shape our views and opinions based on what we read or what we hear. I encourage people to actually uh, interact with people on a personal level. Be personally involved with people from different cultures and backgrounds, whether they are from Afghanistan or any other country. And even in Afghanistan, as I said before, we have 50. 15 official languages and many dialects and etc we are a mixture of different uh, groups of people and you will be amazed you will be surprised how much diversity and complexity there is within afghan society so make sure that you have a personal experience personal contact with afghans that's my uh, uh, suggestion to uh, your viewers and listeners I can definitely vouch for the food and the hospitality. Definitely, it's very true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Sangar, for such in, your incredible insight and joining us today. And I would like to thank our audience for watching. Uh, please join us again this Saturday at the same time where we'll be in conversation with historian Dr. Nafiso Rahman Dumat-Zorani. Uh, I would like to thank uh, everybody else, everybody for tuning in. And thank you again on behalf of Identity International. Thank you.